Hello and welcome to another session of YGBM Science News Podcast, where we discuss the most recent science news from across the Yale community. I'm Mara, second year PhD student in microbiology. And I'm Samantha, first year MPH student in the Department of Health Policy. So Mara, we've been gone for two weeks. We are so happy to be back. And there have been so many great stories published in the meantime. And we really just had to choose our four favorites to share with you all. Um, and please remember, they are not chosen based on merit, but really what we personally find the most interesting. So let's get into it. What are you starting us off with today, Mara? Well, the first story that got my interest when I was reading about it was one about anti-tick vaccine. So what are so special about these vaccines compared to regular vaccines? Why, why are we interested in them? So this lab researchers, how can we protect ourselves from pathogens transmitted by ticks, mosquitoes, and all the insects out there. But for the purpose of this particular research, we'll focus on ticks. And of course, we situated in Connecticut and New England. When we think ticks, we think Lyme disease. Lyme disease is a bacterial disease that's transmitted by, indeed, exotic scapularis ticks. Now, the reason why researchers are trying to make a vaccine that's protected against ticks itself is because making vaccine against Lyme disease bacteria has turned out to be very, very difficult. Actually, historically, there's been a proposed vaccine in the 90s, early 2000s, but their trials did not go well, and that vaccine was never released for human use. So researchers in the laboratory decided to assess a problem from a different perspective. Why not to make vaccine that targets ticks, or specifically tick salivary proteins? So this way, when a tick tries to bite and tries to attach to the organism, it will be rejected and will almost immediately fall off and not be able to transmit any disease. Great. So you mentioned Lyme disease. Are there, are these vaccines relevant to any other diseases? They actually are not, unfortunately. So it is because the way that Lyme borreliosis is transmitted it is a bacteria that has to go from the tick to human, and that is a pretty long process. In fact, usually transmission occurs from over 48 hours, um, so tick has to be bound for a pretty long time. Now, other diseases transmitted by ticks, especially viral diseases like Wasson virus or encephalitis, transmission there happens in a matter of minutes, so even if the tick falls off after the vaccine is in use, it will not really make much of a difference. I see. Okay, so what is the target population for these vaccines? This is actually very interesting. So, of course, humans will potentially be able to be vaccinated by this uh, proposed vaccine. It is not in human trials yet. Um, however, another population that could be vaccinated is deers, because naturally, Lyme disease is really occurring in deers, and then when ticks by deers, they can acquire it and then transmit to humans. However, if we try to eradicate the disease in its natural reservoir, said deers, this may actually work in reducing the exposure to humans as well, such as we did with um, eradicating rabies in wild dogs and foxes in Europe. That was really fascinating. Thank you for sharing this with us. We will drop a link in the description to a review on the topic. I know, I'm actually really excited. I think it has a lot of potential and I can't wait to see how it turns out. Okay, so tell me, what are we talking about next? Well, we are talking about the new findings in a study of the human papillomavirus protein that are now challenging what we previously thought about what determines protein function. 
So can you elaborate on that a little bit more? What exactly did we previously think about protein function? So before the belief was that protein function is solely determined by a specific amino acid sequence. And what are we learning about protein function now? Well, according to Dr. Daniel DeMaio, a professor of genetics at the Yale School of Medicine and senior author on the paper, this new discovery is that protein function is not necessarily determined by the sequence, but could also be heavily influenced by its length. Wait, this, this is fascinating. Can you talk a little bit more about how they made this discovery? Well, to make a long story short, the researchers were focusing on the HPV L2 capsid protein, and they found that when they removed large portions of the protein, there was what is described as a complete loss of infectivity of HPV-16 pseudoviruses. However, when they tried to restore the activity of those proteins, they were able to restore it using segments with different sequences than the original pieces that were removed, which eventually led to the discovery that the length, not the sequence, is what was able to restore the original activity to those affected proteins. Okay, let me wrap my hand around this for a little bit. Um, but what does those results mean for future research? Well, Dr. DeMaio says that it means that there are now more avenues for understanding what is driving protein function, and the consequences of this discovery could be as far-reaching as changing how we are designing targeted therapies for viral infections and other conditions. This is a fascinating breakthrough. Um, I'm very curious about if it holds with other proteins or is it somehow specific to papillomaviruses, but either way, this goes against a lot of things I learned about proteins. I absolutely agree. It goes against everything that I even learned in my basic AP biology or even more basic science classes in school where they say that the sequence is what determines the function of the protein, but now it's turning all of it on its head. I'm actually genuinely intrigued about this. I bet we could try and get one of the researchers from the study to come discuss it with us on the podcast. That would be amazing. So unfortunately we have to move on, but our next study is on how cancer drugs actually fail during testing. Yeah, um, there's this interesting paper that came out that talks about why exactly a lot of cancer drugs fail to be FDA approved as compared to drugs of other categories. Mm -hmm. And how are cancer drugs different from other types of drugs? Well, cancer drugs in a lot of cases are trying to inhibit the function of specific proteins expressed in the cells, such as P38 inhibitors. So P38 naturally is a cellular pathway that, among any, many other functions, involved in cell proliferation. So in many types of cancers, this pathway is significantly upregulated to promote tumor growth. And P38 inhibitors, in turn, target those signal peptides of this pathway to inhibit it and slow down cancer development. And this, in fact, is one of the drugs that they tried in the study. This drug was promising in some stages, but then in phase two, it failed to help cancer patients. Okay, and so what did they find out? Well, they tried to look more further into how the drug functions in the body and in the cells, and they did find out that, in fact, it doesn't target the P38 pathway. It targets EGFR pathway, which is also related to cellular growth, but it can be driving different types of cancers. And the cancers that are driven by P38, MAC, and the cancers that are driven by EGFR do not directly overlap. So I guess initially researchers saw this, this drug 
kills cancer cells and they thought that it's gonna be great for all cancer types or for p38 cancers and it, it just wasn't <laughs> that is so interesting and kind of fortuitous in the way that it's applicable in other places um but what does this tell us about cancer drugs and their potential well the most important thing that we learn here is that in order to develop a successful drug, especially for disease as complex as cancer is, which can have a lot of different causes and a lot of different genetic background, researchers need to look further down, not just accept drugs based on how efficient they are, but try to understand how they function and what is the base here. The authors of the paper want to focus more on genotyping and predicted how the genetic composition of the cells and what is expressed and like the, just the specificity of the tumor cells impacts the drug efficiency and eventually the outcome of treatment. All right, let's move on to our last story of today's podcast. What is it about, Sam? So basically the last thing we're going to be talking about is how a team at led by a professor in the Yale School of Medicine, has developed a video game, an educational video game, intervention to encourage teenagers to get tested for HIV. Can you please start us off with some specifics of HIV? Yeah, absolutely. Um, just for a little background, HIV stands for Human Immunodeficiency Virus, and it is a chronic immune system disease. And the specific relation to teenagers is that according to the CDC in the US, 20% of all new HIV diagnoses in 2020 were among teens and young adults between the age of 13 and 24. That is actually very sad. Um, so I understand that we really need to encourage teens to get tested for HIV. Yeah, no, and it's for several reasons. Um, teens might not know that they have HIV and therefore not know that they are transmitting it. So obviously we need to get get them tested in that sense. And then there's also the fact that there can be barriers related to their social determinants of health that would prevent them from knowing to get tested or having access to testing. And then lastly, they could really underestimate the gravity of being diagnosed with HIV due to the availability of effective treatment options that are obviously and rightfully so being talked about. Those are the facts. Now, where does the video game come into play? So more specifically about the research team, Dr. Lynn E. Fielding, a professor of general medicine at the Yale School of Medicine and her team developed a randomized control trial using a video game called Playtest that would focus on promoting HIV testing and having the player persuade others to engage in healthy behaviors. And I really encourage everyone that is listening to learn more about the randomized control trial and its intricacies. There are a lot of them. And so if you check out the study, it was published in the Journal of Adolescent Health, and you can find information like who the source population is and how it was impacted by COVID because the study was running during that time. I see. But instead of diving into all of this, can you just tell us what are the results of the study? Yeah, absolutely. It all boils down to with the results among the study participants who ended up receiving the intervention and played the game called playtest, as you know, 70% uh, reported a positive change in their attitudes about HIV counseling and testing, which is incredibly encouraging. Those are really good news. I'd love to hear that. Yeah, no, and it sounds really amazing to have things that are accessible and interesting to teenagers, such as video games being used in order to, you know, at least from a public health perspective on my end, to encourage these preventative um, behaviors and maybe reduce stigma. 
Yeah, and I really hope that more sources like this will be coming out in the future. I agree. Well, thank you guys for bearing with us today. And of course, as always, we'll drop all the links to the studies into the description so that you can check them out yourself and maybe do some more research on your part. Yeah, thank you for listening. We hope to have you listening again next week. See you next week. Bye.